0: Good morning everyone, nice to see you all. Thanks so much for those of you who uh, sent messages of congratulations to Sally and I and to our son Sam and his wife Taylor. Uh, We were with him last week for his ordination uh, which was a marvellous time and uh, we were just grateful to be able to be there and to participate in that uh, milestone in his life and in the family uh, of, um, of the Breen's as it were. Uh, it was uh, also uh, a great uh, blessing, I know, to everyone here that, uh, that Rennes uh, preached last week, and so thank you to him for that. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a deliberate mistake, but it was a real mistake uh, that I made uh, the week before when I mentioned Renoir instead of Rembrandt and I know that there were some um, art historians within the congregation who uh, sent messages around saying he's got the wrong artist. You're right, uh, I did get the wrong artist. Um, if, um, if, you want to, um, if you want to follow up on that particular Dutch master and the spiritual meanings behind this marvelous painting by Rembrandt, um, the book that I would recommend is a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henri Nouwen. Um, He's, I think he was a French-Canadian Christian writer and uh, you can see that the the painting is there on the front uh, cover and it's a beautiful meditation on the work of God in bringing us home. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this theme of covenant. The two great themes of scripture that really undergird all of the other themes of Scripture, as I understand it, as I've read the Bible over the last 40 or 50 years, are the themes of covenant and kingdom. Covenant is all about the relationship that God initiates by His decision in His sovereignty with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us one with Himself. And over these last few weeks, we've been looking at the way in which that covenant is worked out and how Jesus reveals that the one that we're in covenant with is not just a far off distant alien God, but one who is the creator of the world that we know as Father, Daddy God. And that Father, in coming to seek us in His Son, has given us a new identity, an identity that of course is from him because all of us, men and women, are sons and daughters of the same father. His first son, the preeminent son, has come to find us and bring us home into the family of our father. And out of that identity, We live a life that reflects our identity, which is of course a life of obedience. Now we saw a couple of weeks ago that the older brother in the story of the prodigal tries to maintain, to create a relationship with his father through obedience and of course that's impossible. Nobody can approach God through obedience because God is holy and we are fallen and it doesn't matter how good you try to be, there's always a gap between us and God. There's always a distance, a considerable distance between His holiness and our fallenness. And so however much we strive in our own strength, to overcome the distance that exists between us and God, we cannot close the distance through our obedience. That gap, of course, is closed by the one who in his perfect life gave up his life for us. And in dying on our behalf connects us to the very heart of the father, fills the gap, bridges the gulf that exists between us, so that in his death, we receive the life of God. Of course, in that same story of the prodigal returning home, we have the younger son, who, though wayward, understood his identity. He says, I will arise and go to my Father and say to him, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. And whilst he was still a long way off, the Father sees him and runs to embrace him and covers him with his identity all over again a fresh robe, a new ring, shoes for his feet. Here, the clarity of the covenant is fully expressed. The covenant is a relationship that exists between us and God that God makes possible. Now, that's enormously important, and we really should never get into any journey into scripture without reminding ourselves and reviewing some of these important things. Because you can go to any passage in the Bible and ask yourself, is this passage principally about relationship or is it principally about responsibility? Because the other great theme of the Bible is kingdom. If one is covenant, the other is kingdom. And the theme of the kingdom Tells us that there is a king, and that king has enormous authority, and in that authority is able to exercise incredible power. Of course, the king is the same person as our father. It's a shock sometimes for us to realize how powerful our father is, how significant he is, how important he is. I remember as a five-year-old going to the army barracks with my dad. He was the regimental sergeant major. As soon as we arrived at the barracks, people started saluting him. I, I had no idea why they were showing him such deference. This was the man who I sat on the couch with on a Saturday afternoon and we watched wrestling. And he would maybe have a beer and break wind. And, and he was great. I loved him. I respected him enormously, but I never thought of saluting him. But here are all these people saluting him, and even the people that were his, his uh, superiors were clearly quite intimidated by him. I realized that my father had a really big job. And so it is, as we encounter the two great themes of Scripture, we discover, yes, that God is our Father, but our Father is the King of the universe, and He wields enormous, unrivaled, incredible authority and power. And here is, perhaps, the greatest shock of all, that because of His decision to make a relationship with us. He has decided to exercise his rule through us. Isn't that incredible? That his plan from the very beginning was that the responsibility of kingdom life was to represent him in his rule, his capacity to be the king, his kingship is expressed in and through us. And so we go to the very first book of the Bible and we find ourselves right there in the midst of God's creative activity. And we come to the sixth day of creation. And God says in verse 26 of chapter one of Genesis, let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all of the creatures that crawl on the ground, let them rule. God's intention in making us in his image was to leave his imprint upon us, the imprint of his presence. Perhaps we can kind of visualize the clay from which we're made and the handprint upon it, and the handprint filled with the hand always. And so we're never supposed to be any more than an arm's length away from God. But having been made in his image, of course, for intimacy and relationship, we're also made for representation. Yes, relationship is the first priority. But representation, follows hard on the heels. And so to live the kingdom life is to live the life of choosing to represent God. God wants to rule through you. That was always his plan. That was always his intention. Now, we have fallen from that place, of course. We are fallen creatures. This is a a fallen creation. But we are in the process of redemption the fundamental, crucial battle has been won by Jesus on the cross. And in that victory, God has declared that there is a new humanity being born in the likeness of the resurrected Christ. And so we, in the now, struggle with the not yet. We, in the present, long for the future because there will be a day when you are revealed for what it is that God made you to be. Paul says, all of creation is on its tiptoes, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Don't you love that? On tiptoes, eager, anticipating what you will look like at the return of Christ because you'll be splendid. You'll be magnificent. You'll be a ruler. God extends his kingdom, his kingship, in you and through you, and right now, sure, we're waiting for that revelation, but we're not waiting for something that's not already happening, because the seed has been planted and the new day has begun, and the present is being changed by the inbreaking of the future. And so we begin to taste the powers of the coming age. Isn't that exciting? Well, it's the Bible, it should be. I think maybe four or five people are excited, the rest of you are kind of. Uncertain about that. So, how do we, how do we, as it were, embrace this reality? How do we engage in this kingdom life? What would it be like for us to begin to look more like what we will become? Well, the kingdom itself is revealed, of course, preeminently in the person of Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, we see that the kingdom is a kingdom that is articulated by the word of Christ. And next week, we'll look at how we can participate in the living out in the incarnation and in the proclamation of that word. As long as we understand that then we can move to this next reality, which is that the kingdom is articulated by the works of Christ. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom. There was a proclamation, but there was also a demonstration of the kingdom. Jesus demonstrated what the future would be like when there was no sin, when there was no sickness, when there was no sadness, and when Satan was overcome. And that demonstration was so clear that everyone saw it and had a window into heaven for that moment. Jesus would have us participate in those works. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time. But this week, we're going to look at the way of the kingdom. What is the way of the kingdom? How how can we immerse ourselves in an understanding of what it means to represent the king? What, What would it take for us to represent the king right now, right here? Well, to do this, and to be faithful to scripture and to be consistent with what it is that we've done so far, we're going to go back to the first book of the Bible. When you look at the first book of the Bible and you just count up the verses, it's quite clear that there are two enormous stories. Yes, there are the stories of of the garden and the stories of the flood and the stories of various other things, but the two great stories of the first book of the Bible are the stories of Abraham and Sarah and the story of Joseph. These are the stories around which all of the narratives of the first book of the Bible are organized. So would you join me at Genesis chapter 37 and let's have a look at that story of Joseph. At the beginning of chapter 37, it says, here is the story of Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob, by now, is an old man himself. And it's, of course, been an interesting journey for Jacob to get to that point, and it speaks about this being the story according to Jacob, or the story about Jacob, but then it doesn't mention him hardly again. Because of course, the real crux of the story is this young man, Joseph. Joseph is a remarkable young man. He's perhaps 17 years old when we see him at the beginning of this story, and he is already a remarkable young man. He's handsome, muscular, good-looking. He's ridiculously gifted. He's overwhelmingly charismatic, and his father prefers him above all of his brothers. If Jane Austen was writing the story, she would maybe have called it Pride and Prejudice and preoccupation because, of course, there's pride in Joseph, there's prejudice in the brothers, and there is this preoccupied father who does the most ridiculously foolish things in preferring his son and putting him in danger with men who are already are known as rapists and killers. Imagine that. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. The coat of many colors, as it's called in the older translations of the Bible, or in some translations, the coat with the long sleeves is all of those things. It's richly ornamented with many colors and it has long sleeves to indicate that the one who wears it is the supervisor of the workers. The long sleeves show that they they don't do work with their hands. And so all of the other brothers might have expected that they got the coat. And most certainly, the oldest brother would be the one who would normally get that coat because it's a coat that represents the family. It has the family colors, it has the family insignia, and you are the supervisor of the others. And Jacob gives it to the youngest of the brothers, indicating that he will be considered by him as the firstborn son. An incredibly... I mean, is it okay to say silly thing to do? It puts Joseph at great risk. And then, of course, Joseph is blind to his circumstances and perhaps the vanity of youth blinds his eyes still further. He says to his brothers in verse six, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Now here's here's the interpretive key to the whole story. It'll be important that you stay with me as I take you through the, through the twists and turns, through the, the granular understanding of what it is that Joseph's gonna go through in these next few years. But what it's all about is whether Joseph will one day reign in representative kingship. That's the key to the story and the brothers don't know it, and neither does Joseph, because there's no response. The best that he can do is to tell them another dream. Then he had another dream, and he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. (laughs) And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. I mean, we've all been 17. And Joseph is saying to his father, the sun and the moon, the 11 stars, the brothers. I've had this dream and it's almost like, it, it feels like I'm, I'm the center of the universe. How do, you, how do you feel about it? Do you feel that I'm the center of the universe too? And of course, the real problem about this for Joseph is that, the Lord is orbiting his life along with everybody else. Well, true to type, Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go and check on your brothers and so he sends him off and he tries to find them in various different places. He finally finds them in a place called Dotham. They see him coming from a distance through the heat haze. He's come to be their supervisor. They say, let's kill that dreamer. One of the older brothers kind of intercedes on his behalf and says, well, you know, maybe not kill. Maybe we could just rough him up a bit and kind of knock him off his high horse. So they strip him of his, of his richly ornamented robe and they throw him in a, in a dry well, a cistern. And then their cousins appear, the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites are traders, and they're quite happy to trade in human flesh as well as everything else, and so they buy Joseph and they take him to Egypt with them. The brothers, they kill a goat and they put the blood of the goat on the coat and they take the coat home to to Jacob and they pretend that he's been killed by a wild animal and Jacob mourns him many days. Meanwhile, Joseph is in the slave market in Egypt and there in Egypt, he is purchased by the head of security for Pharaoh. He's kind of he's a kind of combination of the head of the FBI and the head of the Secret Service. He's detailed to care for the security of the king, but also to ensure that the people who are wrongdoers are properly prosecuted, especially if they're VIP prisoners. Joseph is brought into that household. And here in chapter 39, if you're following me, and verse two, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Nothing his master thought of did he need to worry about because Joseph dealt with it and the man who had bought Joseph realized that the Lord was with him and set him over everything. And Potiphar's wife saw him, that he was handsome and muscular, well-made. She was not a shrinking violet, this lady. Her first words to him recorded in Scripture are these, come to bed with me. Joseph, of course, flees the temptation. She attempts again and on that occasion, he leaves his cloak behind and so upset is she that her, her advances have been refused that she feigns molestation. And Potiphar is furious, but he doesn't believe his wife. How do I know? Because the story of Joseph continues. We have to be quite clear. Joseph would never have survived such an accusation if Potiphar had believed that it were true. Potiphar's angry. Maybe this has happened before. Certainly, it seems to be a fairly well-worn track with Potiphar's wife. He's angry that he can no longer have Joseph in the position that he's in, and so he sends him to the place within the compound that he oversees that take care of the VIP prisoners and there Joseph continues to prosper. We see that again the Lord is with him and the warden of the prison has nothing to worry about because his trustee, Joseph, takes care of everything. Well, that's when things begin to change for Joseph. He's in the midst of a deep and dark and very long valley. I'm sure he wondered why he had suffered such injustice. Why was it that he had had an unequal amount of the world's suffering? What was it about him that meant that he carried such a terrible burden of sadness? there was intrigue in the courts of Pharaoh. These royal courts have always been like this. The chief cupbearer to the king is the one who is closest to the king because before the king eats or tastes any drink, the cupbearer eats and tastes it. And then they wait for a little while and if the cupbearer doesn't fall over and die, they assume that the food and the drink is okay. And so the king eats it. And because of that, closeness of relationship this person becomes a trusted counsellor and so in our words he would be called a butler well one day Pharaoh eats something that makes him sick and it's a pastry so obviously it's the baker's fault but the butler tasted it so maybe There's a conspiracy between the baker and the butler. And so the butler and the baker and the candlestick maker are put in prison. There's no candlestick maker, but there's the butler and the baker, they're put in prison. And they are examined for the truth of their story. And in the midst of that anxiety, of course, they're liable to have sleepless nights, and when they sleep, they have troubling dreams, and the butler has a dream of a mug and him squeezing grapes into that mug and offering it to the king, and the, but- and the baker sees a basket on his head and birds eating the pastries from the basket. And they have no idea what it means. And they come down to breakfast, where Joseph is serving, and they're both downcast. And Joseph asks them what it is that's wrong. In Genesis 40 and verse eight, it says, we both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And of course he interprets the dreams for them. The butler will go free, the baker will lose his life. But the center of the story is that Joseph has now got to the point, maybe 10 or 11 years into his journey where Joseph and the Lord are at the center of the universe together. Do not interpretations belong to the Lord. Tell me your dreams. Now this is an important step. It's not the final step, but it's an important way along the journey. But Joseph has a little further to walk, and that part of the journey is the darkest portion. Because though he says to the butler when he's set free, don't forget me, of course he's forgotten. He's forgotten until Pharaoh has his dreams. He wakes after a terrible night, having seen starving, carnivorous cows devouring whole and healthy cows and wizened wheat devouring lush, fat wheat in the field. He calls his counselors, of course, the cupbearer is there and asks them what these things can mean and no one has an interpretation. And then the cupbearer says, your majesty has probably forgotten that small occasion in the past when you were possibly a bit upset with me? You probably don't remember it. But on that occasion, I met a young man who can interpret dreams. Go and get him. So they shave him, they clean him, they put him in some decent clothes and they bring him before Pharaoh. Now this is the moment this is the knife edge on which the story is balanced. Will Joseph learn his lesson? Or will he have to go back into the depths of the valley and retrace his steps? Genesis 41 and verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, but God. I cannot do it, but God can. I've learned my lesson, Pharaoh. I've understood that for all of my talent, for all of my prowess, for all of my personal strength and charisma, I cannot do it. It doesn't matter how it is that I've been gifted. It doesn't matter how talented I am. It doesn't matter the privilege or the opportunities that I've had. I can't do do it, but God can. Do you hear? Do you get it? The journey is a hugely important journey. This is the way of the kingdom. The Lord is now at the center and Joseph is at the edge and now he can be used. Now God can speak through him more effectively. Now God can work through him more effectively. Now the words and works of the kingdom of God Can function because someone has learned the way of the kingdom. I'm sure, like me, you wonder why you've walked this valley. Why all the hardship at work? Why the difficulties in the family? The struggles in your marriage. You're wrestling with your physical and personal conditions. Let me make it clear. It's not God, the puppeteer, finding ways to inflict pain. Of course not. God is our father and he loves us. But in our fallenness, we will encounter a fallen world and a fallen flesh and it will take us into the valley. And in the valley, we embrace the way of the king because in the valley, we learn what it means to walk like Jesus. You see, all of the things that you and I encounter, all of the difficulties, are not designed by God to hurt us or to show off his power. They're simply the context of our life in which he wants to meet us and ask us this question Can you do it or can I? He asks this question, who's in charge? Who's the king? Who's on the throne, is it you? Does the world revolve around you? Or does it revolve around me? Have you included with you on the throne me or have you vacated the throne and allowed me to be at the center? Is it still about you at the end of the day? Is it still about you at the beginning of the day? Is it still about you when you focus on the difficulties or is it possibly about me and my desire to show you compassion and kindness and love and mercy and through you to show that same compassion and love and kindness and mercy to others? Paul, he puts it like this in Ephesians chapter two and verse five. Your attitude, your attitude, my attitude, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You see, you and I, we start out on this journey, this journey of life. And unwittingly, and unknowingly, perhaps through kindly, preoccupied parents, we begin to think that we're the center of the universe. And little by little, the path takes us on an entirely different journey than the one that we expected. And we find ourselves way down in the valley. But here's the thing. In the valley, we meet another person who won a great victory in the valley. It's in the valley that we meet Jesus. It's in the valley that we discover his way. It's in the valley that we find ourselves at a cross. And we realize whatever valley we've been in, Jesus has been there too. However hard our valley, he has known that suffering too. However difficult that valley, he's been there. However much our sin and foolishness contributed it, he's been there and he's won back that ground on our behalf. Jesus has been to the valley, the deepest and darkest valley. And so however deep that valley is of yours or mine, he will meet us there. And here's the shocking and the astonishing thing you'll discover that in meeting him there, the journey in getting there has been the preparation that you needed to follow him from there into the life that he has for you and the ways in which he wants your life to touch the lives of others because of course it doesn't stop at the cross. It continues past an empty grave and resurrection and victory and glory. And so God's goodness and God's mercy and kindness, his authority and power are expressed in you because you've learned the way of the king. I've learned the way of Jesus. So where are you today? Are you in that valley? Is that valley something where you're crawling to get up the sides? Or is that valley a place where you're prepared to surrender and say, Jesus, I embrace your way because I know I'll meet you here and I trust that you won't leave me here, but you'll carry me from this place. A young woman, Some weeks ago came to the first time I preached on Psalm 23 and I talked about the valley. She came to us today. She said, I'm coming out the other side of the valley and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, you know me well enough by now to know what happens next. I'd love to pray with you if you're in that valley. If you're here today to be part of the prayer team, then I'd love you to come and pray as well with the folks who need to meet Jesus in their valley today and ask him to lead them from that valley to the place of resurrection. That valley that's been created through your work, through your family, through your personal, physical conditions, and circumstance. Jesus today wants to meet you there. So come and join me as I pray at the end. I think the band will come as well. But let's pray together. And come and join me here if you know that you're in your valley and that today is a day to embrace Jesus in the midst of your valley. It's so important that we use our bodies as instruments of prayer. And so in coming forward, it's not a demonstration to anyone else other than yourself. And God sees what we do and he receives it as prayer. So you come, you come. Lord, I pray for these dear ones, for my sisters and brothers in the midst of their valley. And I thank you, Lord, that there's no condemnation spoken over any of your children. It doesn't matter why or how you got here. The important thing is that you're acknowledging that you're here now. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy is new today. We thank you, Lord, that your goodness is flowing today. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you meet us here. And that you carry us, Lord, beyond the cross and the empty grave. Lord, I pray that victims will become victors today. I pray, Lord, that the vanquished will become conquerors today. And that through submission, Jesus, we'll see the power of your life. Lord, I pray for each one who's here and each one who longs, Lord, for the day when the dawn breaks on a new season. And I thank you, Lord, that you say today is a new day. And today, if you'll listen, you can hear the birds singing, heralding the dawn, And so, Lord, we we surrender at this point. Ask you, Lord, for your goodness, your power, your healing and restoration, for your grace to carry us into the new season with authority and power. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say,